You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. So I'm Bronwyn Williams and we're back at the small print and today my guest is Ronak Gopaldis who I'm going to hand over to introduce himself the way you would like to be introduced. Uh, thanks Bronwyn, good to be with you. Um, yeah, I write, speak and think for a living. Uh, my focus is primarily global geopolitics and how it relates to the African continent. Uh, in my former life I was an investment banker, now I kind of look at themes and trends across the continent, I guess a little bit similar to what you do. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, prior to the pandemic, I used to travel a lot. Uh, now I travel to Cape Town. Um, but yeah, uh, generally that's kind of, uh, that's what I do, kind of look at interesting themes and trends and try to make sense of the world and the continent at large. And that's exactly why we're speaking to you today about trying to make sense about what is going on in the world. And in particular, we want to look at how this whole shift that's taken place with the pandemic has really shaken up geopolitics, but particularly for the African continent. It's opened up some new opportunities and some new threats. So do you have a comment on that? Generally speaking, what are the, the big macro trends you're seeing that we're heading into in 2021 that African leaders and the political sphere and in the corporate sphere are going to have to be keeping an eye on right now? So I think we need to start by kind of looking at the global backdrop and, and what's happened in that context. So I think we we are seeing a seminal shift in, in what's happening globally. We've moved from the era kind of after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, where we had the Washington consensus, where globalization, democratization, capitalism were the dominant kind of themes. And that was the only show in town for a long time. That was punctuated in 2008 by the global financial crisis, which led to populist impulses, you had uh, monetary easing and, and fiscal austerity, which gave rise to, to strongman politics uh, and populist um, elements rising on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. Now we've kind of had a public health emergency, which has required a big interventionist response from the state. Um, so we are now kind of almost entering an era of big government, big debt and, and, and big spending. Uh, and I think, you know, we've moved very far away from that that neoliberal kind of idea of the Washington consensus to an era where the role, the relevance and the reach of the state is, is far greater. Um, and I think Africa is not immune to that, to that, uh, to, to these trends. Um, so I think we, we've got a very interesting dynamic at play over here where you've effectively got the paradox of the state, because on the one hand, you're saying that you are going to be seeing a, a much more interventionist, much more muscular, much more robust state. Uh, on the other hand, you look at many countries on the continent and you see the state as being a critical part of the problem, uh, an inhibitor to economic growth and uh, a real a real constraint. So I think this is the realization that we have to kind of get to grips with is that the state is both part of the solution and the problem um, and how we navigate the, the state's relationships with international creditors and international superpowers uh, in an African context is going to be quite important to observe. Yeah, I think it's a great opening point, that whole shift from the, the older consensus towards that new consensus with the much bigger governments, much more interventionist governments, really is one of those big trends that we have to take cognizance of. However, we can unpack that a little bit in that there's quite a big difference between a big weak state and a big strong state and a big good state and a big bad state. So I think it's sort of like those three sort of layers that you have to unpack. 
And the African challenge is obviously quite different to say the American challenge or the Asian challenge or the European challenge in that we are headed towards having bigger states across Africa, but also weak states. So I think Nigeria is a great case in point right there. You've got a big government, it's quite powerful, but it's not that powerful. It's powerful in sort of principle, but not in practice. It's not able to enforce its ideas using law and order and all those sort of channels that perhaps other stronger states are able to do, like looking at, of course, your two sort of polar opposite powers, your United States and your China, they are able to shape the world in their own image and have the means to do this. What are your thoughts on that? Just taking, unpacking that first sort of lever that is important there, that idea of the strength of the state. Are African states in general, or in specific, if you want to pick on a couple of them, actually strong enough in order to be big states and to change the world into their own image? Uh, at the moment, the short answer is no. Uh, and I'd add, in addition to kind of the, the strength of the state, the legitimacy of the state. And we yeah. know that trust is declining in democracy. Um, we're seeing in many countries, democracy is regressing. You're seeing through, uh, you know, physical autocracy and digital autocracy, uh, a lot of the gains are being eroded. You look at the Mo Ibrahim governance index from the first time in a decade, Africa has, has kind of slipped uh, as a continent in general on those indicators. So, you know, I think the pandemic has exposed a lot of the glaring weaknesses in terms of governance, in terms of economic mismanagement. Um, and it really kind of poses a big question mark around, around the role in the state and its, its, its responsibilities going forward. As we know, demographics are a really, really big factor. Um, we are going to have the largest population in the world by 2050, one in four people in the world are gonna be from Africa. Uh, if these young people don't have jobs, if they're not able to meaningfully participate in the economy, then they look for things outside of the of the the, the formal uh, economic structures and and your your conventional approaches, and that's where things like organized crime uh, and and these kind of activities become more attractive when there are crises of legitimacy, when there are power vacuums, uh, and when you've got multiple um, factors which which exacerbate conflict. So I think you know these these are obviously very concerning trends, um, but you know there there are opportunities as well. Um, but again, I think the the way the the African state, which is going to be front and center in this new era, navigates its relationships with international creditors, international powers, its citizens, non-state actors, and the private sector and the business community, I think are going to be fundamental to determining whether we succeed or fail. Yes, I know that we've both written a bit about this whole issue going forward. And the, and the big challenge for African governments and African leaders in the public and private sector is this whole concept of having sort of first world tastes, but third world budgets or developed world expectations, but developing world ability to deliver. So we kind of caught in this, this world where we are over promising, but we are under delivering where we are committing to big state spending, but we just simply don't have the ability to actually make those plans into fruition, to get those money multipliers, to get the economies actually growing again. And this is quite a dangerous place to be in from, and of course, a vicious and virtuous cycle and circle point of view, but also from a political and economic stability point of view. So if we are sort of over-promising with moonshots and all those fantastic development states, new green deals, all these great big ideas, if we are unable to execute them properly, we end up, of course, with sort of a worse problem than what we started with, both economically speaking and politically speaking again, because that just erodes trust and legitimacy 
in the States. So that's kind of like the macro problem context that we are looking at here. But add the pandemic in and we've got some even more sort of specific challenges that are coming out there. Do you want to unpack that a little bit or should I interrogate you a bit deeper with more specific questions? Yeah, I think I think you know uh, there, there's loads of challenges that uh, that that you can wrestle with. I think you know obviously Africa is the poorest continent in the world. Uh, there's no secret about that. And I think what what we've seen through the pandemic is that we had a trifecta of of, of issues that came to the fore. We had a commodity price decline. We had capital flight, which elevated the cost of funding. Uh, and then we, have, of course, had COVID, which magnified the governance challenges. Uh, and a lot of the countries that were affected already had very narrow revenue lines, very weak balance sheets, and, and were, were mismanaging the, their economies anyway. And a, a, an example that stands out is Zambia, uh, which was in crisis even before the crisis, and, and this was simply a kick in the teeth. Um, so very much a perfect storm, a confluence of factors, which led to the continent experiencing its first recession in 25 years, according to the IMF. Um, so, you know, that was that was a, a, a real kind of um, setback for, for the continent, but there are green shoots of, of recovery at the moment. The African Development Bank is forecasting a growth rate of 3% uh, for the continent this year. We've seen commodity prices ticking up nicely. Copper's at an eight-year high. Oil is up over 300% since its lows in April last year. LNG is up as well. So that's a boost. Um, in addition to that, you know, financial markets uh, are being injected with with huge monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, which uh, which is creating kind of risk on environment. Investor sentiment seems to be seems to be uh, on the up. Overlay this with with potentially lower trade tensions between the U.S. and China, the commodity uh, recovery. Um, and this kind of bodes well for, for recovery, uh, but this is obviously very contingent on the vaccine economic story. And as we know, we're lagging behind uh, as a continent quite significantly relative to the rest of the world. Uh, so we cannot afford to be a laggard. And I think uh, the execution of the vaccine strategy is going to determine whether we can actually benefit from this recovery or not. Uh, the other point to bear in mind, I think, from an economic perspective, is that we've been here before. So at the turn of the last decade, you know, there was this whole Africa rising narrative. It was very superficial, uh, but we squandered the opportunity. So, you know, there was we we kind of had bad economics and bad politics, uh, and we should have capitalized on the windfall, and we didn't do that. Now we it kind of seems like we've got this get out of jail free card again. Uh, we should really learn from the mistakes that we made in the past and, and, and make sure that we don't squander these benefits this time around. Yeah, so let's talk about that, as you call it, that get out of jail free card. So obviously we've sort of contextualized the kind of formulated the kind of mess that we're in right now. And that opportunity is the fact that there's a whole lot of liquidity slushing around looking for yield right now. And quite frankly, most of the world has run out of ideas to the point that we're investing in things like GIFs, you know, because that, there's, that's that's the best place to get yield right now. So how does Africa become part of that sort of look, that capital looking for something to invest in story? What does Africa have to present and how does Africa have to present it so that international investors who suddenly have their fantastic stimulus checks and bankers and big tech companies and VC firms who are just absolutely awash with capital are going to start looking at us rather than at sort of virtual goods economies, because that's where the low-lying 
buying fruit is. And I think this is an interesting angle to just unpack a bit because you've even got companies like Tesla who would rather put their capital into Bitcoin than into investing in real world businesses. So that should be give us a pause for thought on just how broad this get out of jail free card really is and what we have to do to, to change that, to get the big capital investing in real problems and real businesses where we can offer real growth on our side of the world rather than on the sort of virtual goods which are offering a, a different kind of very easy come easy go low-lying fruit story so do you have a comment on that and how we can change that story to become part of that story or are we going to miss this boat so i think you know from uh, a financial markets perspective at the moment we don't really need to do much quite frankly because the the kind of uh you know the global economy is awash with liquidity uh and i think that's that's kind of playing out you know in the same week that you had zambia defaulting on its eurobond last year cote d'ivoire after its election put away a eurobond which was five times oversubscribed at a, at a yield of less than six percent so you know from from an investor perspective it depends on which way you look at it if you're cynical, you'll say that these guys have been greedy. Uh, if you are less cynical, you'll say that they're, they're being nuanced discretionary investors who are differentiating and Africa is not a country. So I think, you know, from, from that perspective, it's, it's quite simple. Our growth rates are, are far more attractive than the rest of the world. What investors want, though, is policy consistency, credibility and coherence. Um, and I think we often shoot ourselves in the foot by 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 putting across mixed messaging, uh, clumsy policy own goals, um, you know, political instability um, is, 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 is something that, that concerns investors. And, you know, perhaps there is an African risk premium uh, because, because investors don't properly understand these markets. But I think, um, you know, in the current conditions, uh, we are likely to see uh, countries that, that make sure that their houses are ordered, in order domestically that follow sensible policies uh, are going to be beneficiaries. And I think Egypt stands out as an example over there. Egypt in the, the height of the pandemic in May last year put away a Eurobond five times, four times uh, oversubscribed um, at a very attractive rate. It's following kind of IMF prescriptions and, and policy protocols, and it's being rewarded by investors. So I think, you know, from a financial market perspective, um, you know, what investors want uh, is quite simple and African, African policymakers um, know the rules of the game and 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 would do well to kind of to 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 play to play the game pragmatically. I think looking at a trade and investment, um, this is where the Continental Free Trade Agreement becomes really really interesting. Uh, I think any investor worth their salt will realize that, given the size and the scale of of what the Continental Free Trade Agreement offers. It's simply too big to ignore. It's a market bigger than that of India. Uh, you know, over 1.3 billion people, um, uh, economy the size of 3.4 trillion US dollars. Uh, it's going to be big if we pull it off. So I think you know that that becomes uh, very attractive. And I think you know the pandemic has also accelerated a couple of trends. Localization and digitalization are two trends in particular that have that have come to the fore, and they fall nicely within what the Continental Free Trade Agreement is trying to achieve. Uh, and I think this should be the wake-up call for, for the continent's policymakers, its civil society, and its private sector, that given what we're seeing with isolationist tendencies, with more nationalism, with border closures, Africa really needs to kind of focus on homegrown solutions and really bet on itself. Uh, so hopefully this will be the stimulus that we need to catalyze this regional integration project. Um, as we know, 
regional trade is abysmal at less than 15% uh, at the moment. Um, the cost and the ease of doing business uh, leaves a lot to be desired. So I think, you know, if, if this is a, is a kind of stimulus to, to foster regional integration, that would be great. Uh, and again, you know, that creates a virtuous circle because um, investors suddenly have bigger markets, more integrated markets uh, to tap into. As we know, we've got a young population which can play a significant role in global production and consumption. Um, and I think, you know, this is the only country, uh, the only continent rather, that's not, that's, not, uh, that's not fully industrialized. So that creates significant opportunity as well. So I think the the investment case is, is is quite apparent. Of course, it's not without risk, but the but this is this is I guess uh, what makes it interesting the risk reward paradigm. Yeah, uh, interesting Freudian slip right there when you're talking about Africa as a, as a country versus as a continent, because that's the great irony here when you start talking about the free trade agreement in that we've been railing against this idea of Africa being a country and saying, no, it's actually many different countries. But at the same time, the free trade agreement is perhaps the biggest opportunity to actually get the continent acting more like a single block going forward, bringing a bit more geopolitical clout to the yeah. table because a fragmented economy is not going to help us to compete in a balkanized, regionalized world where the different big powers, the big economic and political powers are forming very, very powerful alliances. Africa is going to have to decide to work with itself, but it's also going to have to decide to work with different formulations of these regional blocks that are emerging. So you have a comment there on what the opportunity is and perhaps what some of those less opportunities or more like threats that are arising as the world sort of reconfigures into different blocks as you've got new partnerships making and breaking in the east as you've of course got a wild card usa that's not providing the same sort of continuity that it has for the last century and what is africa's role in that does africa face a choice or not so that's a great question because I, I think we are seeing kind of huge disruptions, changes. Uh, there's a new game of geopolitical chess uh, occurring globally and Africa is a significant theater for competition. Uh, I think the big question mark is, are we going to be victims or are we going to be victors in this equation? And that's really going to depend on whether we play the game with pragmatism rather than ideology, whether we're smart uh, about how we do this and whether we exercise agency. So I think uh, you know that is is, is really the, the crux of the matter over here, uh, and how we slice and dice the kind of power dynamics in our favor using economic diplomacy. Um, I think is 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 how we 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 can can benefit. I think you're quite right. You know the the success is going to come down to whether we can negotiate as a collective. Africa's power is as a collective. That's when things like its population size, its natural resources, um, its 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 uh, consumption, um, you know, power uh, and and its human capital power all become really relevant. I think otherwise, you're like you said, a collection of fragmented states, each with disparate interests. So, given where we are and how far behind we are, the rest of the world. Um, we need to realize that that the only shot we have in terms of of, of uh, asserting ourselves on a global stage is is by operating as a collective. And I, again, this is where the Continental Free Trade Agreement is an opportunity, even though it's aspirational, to kind of forge these interests into a broad collective vision, where even if we don't get there immediately, uh, it 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 gives us something to work towards. 
I think what's also really interesting is that we're seeing the contours kind of shaping differently with, with established um, superpowers and as well as emerging superpowers. So, I mean, you know, for the past few years, the West has really been preoccupied with its domestic issues. You've had Make America Great Again under the Trump administration, uh, America First, that isolationist policy. And uh, they, you know, there was a policy of really benign neglect for a while uh, towards the continent, or belatedly, it was framed in, in, in competition with Russia and China. I think that's changing under Biden administration, you're getting a more multipolar kind of kind of world, but where Africa features in terms of the priority list uh, for, for this administration, which has got its hands full with domestic issues is going to be uh, quite interesting, but I think you know they they are, are realizing that that they've got a role to play on the global stage, uh, which is a big big uh, step change from from where we were previously. China, as we know, is very actively engaged on the African continent, mostly through the Belt and Road Initiative, a massive infrastructure project. China's lending is typically in the form of cash for infrastructure or cash for resources. Um, it's come under a bit of criticism of late, uh, largely on account of the xenophobic attacks that occurred in China, debt trap diplomacy allegations, which you know are contested, um, and the fact that that kind of there there is a sense that that uh, that China might look inward. So you know that relationship, I think, um, is is still strong and and will continue to 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 be that way, particularly in the current context where healthcare diplomacy is a strategy that is really being being used uh, by the Chinese to, to, to make inroads into, into the continent or cement the inroads. Then you've got players like, like, uh, like Russia, like India coming to the fore as well, even Turkey. Um, you know, Russia with a Sputnik vaccine uh, is, is making inroads. Guinea and Algeria have already indicated that they'll be, they'll be using that vaccine. Russia's been very clever about how it's it's looked to establish itself on the continent, uh, looking for countries where there's weak legitimacy and their power vacuums using a combination of hard power and energy diplomacy. Um, I think a lot of people will be familiar with what Wagner has done in, uh, in the Central African Republic, exploiting the, the strife over there to, to really further Russia's uh, interests. And I think you know, Russia realizes that it's not the Soviet Union, it doesn't have the, the, the financial or military muscle that it did in the past, but it has been very actively engaged on the continent um, during the Cold War and it's looking to really step up these efforts. Uh, similarly, India um, has aspirations to kind of uh, further its international agenda. Uh, the anxiety and the competition that it has with China in the Asian subcontinent has led it to partner up with Japan and launch the Asia-Africa Growth Corridor, which uh, is a digital and maritime um, initiative, which is aimed at, at countering China's influence. Unlike the Chinese kind of model, it's largely private sector led, uh, it's smaller and quantum, but potentially beneficial for the continent if we can play our cards right. And India, of course, is coming to the party with vaccine goodwill again. Um, and then you've got Turkey, new power without the kind of colonial baggage that, uh, that, that many other countries have had. Um, they've got 44 embassies on the continent now, Turkish airlines travel to 50 plus countries on the continent. Uh, you look at the FDI trade and, and foreign aid uh, numbers, 
uh, from Turkey to Africa, and and that really paints a very interesting picture. It's on the rise quite significantly. So um, you know, there there are all these new new kind of any any global power worth its salt realizes that that Africa is going to be a, a critical component of the future. It needs to be very actively engaged, uh, and I think this is creating opportunities. Of course, if we are naive, if we don't manage these partners. Uh, appropriately, um, then I think we, we're going to be on the wrong side of this and we're going to be exploited as we were during the last Cold War. But I think there really is an opportunity with savvy diplomacy and with, with, with clever out-the-box thinking and with a kind of collaborative approach uh, by continental policymakers to, to, to really use this to our, our advantage. Yeah, so maybe you can unpack a little bit more about what those potential pitfalls are at this point in time, because essentially what you're outlining there is that it's a choice that African leaders as individuals or as a bloc, depending on how they decide to play this, have to choose who to partner with for the future. And this is quite an interesting question because we've kind of seen that whole demographic dividend pinball sort of fall from Europe to America, bounce through to Asia, first in China and then India, and now it's going to be Africa's turn. So they've all kind of been there and seen both the pros and the cons of being that sort of epicenter of human growth going on. But from an African perspective, who does it make sense to align with at this point in time? Should we be aligning with someone like India, who's just ahead of us in terms of this demographic dividend curve? Or should we be looking to partner with some of the more aging populations? And there are different things that we could unpack there, because by partnering with more, more of the Asian powers who are much closer to us in terms of sort of timeline of how these, these population waves play out. They're also in a sense going to become our competitors. And we've seen this, this is what's happened with China as it starts to age and India starts to come into its own that the conflict between those two powers has definitely intensified. So if we are gonna sort of look at this from a long game perspective, what is the play that makes most sense for Africans right now. Partnering with the aging sort of West where they might have more bargaining power in terms of the nice trade between capital and excess labor, it maps up quite nicely, or by partnering with the more sort of energetic contemporary emerging superpowers that could end up being competitors a bit further down the line. Do you have any thoughts on that? And of course, contradict me if, if anything I've said is outlining these sort of macro flows doesn't map onto your view of the world. Yeah, so I, I think I've got a slightly different take and I don't think that it needs to be an either or decision. I think there's the scope for everyone to be engaged and for us to kind of play uh, play nicely with, with all global, global powers. Um, and I think that's a function of, of, of a horses for courses approach. Um, given where we are in terms of the development curve, uh, we have multiple needs. You can kind of look to, uh, to China for red and roll, red and road uh, infrastructure, Japan and India for, for, for digital and maritime infrastructure, you know, in terms of capacity building, technical assistance, value-based leadership. Uh, democracy building, the, the Europeans are, are, are great partners. So I think each each country offers some kind of value, uh, but we've got to dictate that agenda. I think also we've got to be we've got to be quite pragmatic in the way that we do this. Uh, as I mentioned, we are very far behind the rest of the world. We're not industrialized. So we need to take smart cuts. So that means that we've got to hack the ladder to success. We can't replicate the ways that have been done in the past. And, and that's largely because we face a very unique, unique set of circumstances 
in the sense that we're facing, uh, we've got to kind of industrialize and democratize simultaneously, uh, but in the context of premature deindustrialization. So this means that we've got to do things in a way that's completely different to, to the way anyone's done this before. As I mentioned also, you know, the, if you look at the way Asia industrialized, um, it was not really under democracy. Democracy was a kind of luxury factor that came a lot later. Uh, so it was done under a very autocratic command and control kind of regime. And if you look at the countries that, that have been successful in, in, in making inroads into, into uh, reducing inequality and, and fostering uh, inclusive growth, a country like Rwanda stands out, a country like Ethiopia, uh, stands out. These these were largely command and, and control economies. So there is a sentiment that democracy is not for Africa, that it hasn't worked, that is it's an imported construct, and that politics of the stomach requires much more forceful leadership uh, and, and a far more interventionist approach. So this is where I think in this context, from an aspirational perspective, the, the Chinese model is quite appealing to African leaders because they say, look at China, they were poor, they're not poor anymore, they're not a democracy, we can do the same. Unfortunately, the capacity and institutional factors that, that have driven that and the capacity of the states are very, very different. And I think this is where the West is going to, to face quite a big existential dilemma is that the West often puts forward uh, values-based leadership um, and holds itself to very high standards. China, China is playing a, an extremely different different game. So you know the the the, the comment that, that that often comes to the, the fore is that whilst everybody else is playing is playing checkers, China is effectively playing chess. Uh, and I think this is this is going to create a very very interesting tension um, for for African countries in particular around who to align with. Uh, because on the one hand, they've got the efficient, autocratic. Um, Chinese model, which, you know, this pesky thing, democracy, openness, transparency, doesn't need to exist. And I think China is demonstrating that for them. On the other hand, you know, um, given the, the creditor matrix and the fact that there are colonial legacies, that they are very dependent on, on the likes of the US, um, I think isolating the US uh, and, and, and Western partners is going to be very difficult. Um, so, and I think a lot of the funding is tied to kind of those aspirational goals as well when it comes from the West. You think of the kind of IMF type type programs as a case in point. So I think um, I think this is going to create a very, very interesting set of choices for, for African policymakers to contend with is kind of which vision of the future do, do they align with. Of course, there's a third way that Africa could present its own vision of the future, because this is the thing. I mean, China has taken its wave and shaped at least a part of the world into its own image. Is there, do you think that's even a possibility at this stage? Is there a will? Is there an appetite? And is there the ability for Africa to design its own vision of the future? And this is something that I look at quite a lot in my own work. I mean, we hear all the, th the wonderful words around Afrofuturism and around this time, it's our way, and this is this is our time, this is our turn, and all those sort of slogans that, that go around. And we have at the, at the more sort of global context, conversations around the Great Reset and all of these things. Is there a third way? Is there a possibility for Africa to define its own vision for a world order that is not the Western messy doggy dog capitalism that we value liberty and, and human values and you know human freedoms and all this on the one hand, 
or the very efficient but very totalizing vision that sort of Asia offers at this point in time, which gives you sort of economic security, but you trade away then a lot of basic human freedoms and a lot of individualism. And from my perspective, definitely sort of living in Africa my whole life, the African sort of mindset and culture is neither of those things. And perhaps imposing either of those worldviews onto a continent as diverse as Africa might not lead to the same results if not for ideological reasons, just for simply practical reasons. I'm not convinced that any African state is strong enough, as you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, to actually implement China's vision of the world without literally ceding control to China to manage those countries for us. And I'm not sure that African citizens will be happy with that trade-off, even if they are happy with that way of managing their lives. I think that there is um, is an appetite for Africa being run by and ruled by Africa rather than by another global power. So what do you think there? Is there an opportunity or is, or is that just simply a pipe dream? We simply do not have the financial resources or political cohesion to present the world with a third way. So right now, I think we face three big challenges, debt, disease, and dysfunction. Uh, and I think until and unless we can get a handle on those, um, you know, we're going to be dependent on, on external parties. And I think that's fundamentally the issue that we have is this cycle of dependency. We can see it in our economics where kind of countries like Nigeria that produce, that produce crude oil are importing the refined product. You know, we've got this perpetual dependency on, on external parties for funding, for, for, for trade relationships, for investment. And I think that needs to change. Um, now, of course, that is going to be very contingent on leadership. And at the moment, the type of leadership that we have is, is really not fit for purpose. So, you know, we have a demographic disconnect that's about 40 years between those that are leading and those that they are leading, uh, you know, People are being governed by their grandparents, uh, grandfathers in most cases. We've got very few women leaders as well. Um, and, and so, you know, leadership that, that is more inclusive, that, that, is, that is more in touch with the needs of the youth, and, and that is, I guess, uh, more cognizant of the fact that, you know, um, you can do well and you can do good simultaneously, and that the economic model needs to shift fundamentally from being uh, about kind of purely, um, you know, the, this kind of very closed patronage kind of uh, political elite setup to a, to a more inclusive one, I think is going to be quite, quite important because otherwise we're facing a ticking time bomb, um, you know, and we've seen it play out in various countries from Egypt to Algeria to Burkina Faso. When people have had enough, they've had enough and, and it, it, it kind of the, once the, 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 the match is lit, um, then things erupt. Uh, and I think, you know, that this, the inequality mix that we've got on the continent at the moment is, is, is not sustainable. So we need radically different solutions, which is to my point about smart cuts, about how we hack the ladder to, to success. So I think it's really going to be contingent upon the leadership that we have. I think a, a far more confident, assertive, muscular African leadership that, 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 that kind of, you know, is... Is, is not intimidated by or, or, or doesn't cower to kind of what, what global powers um, kind of dictate to it is, is, is very, very important. And, you know, I've had various discussions with people who suggest that actually the continent needs to be quite militant and quite aggressive in, in, in understanding what it wants and how 
it, it, it goes for that because otherwise it's going to forever be dictated uh, to by, by, by external powers. So I think, you know, definitely African agency is very important. I think setting our values and our vision for the future uh, is, is critical. Uh, I think we, we cannot afford to, to neglect external partners. There's a role for, for each of them. Uh, but I think, you know, to be quite honest, the Continental Free Trade Agreement represents the, the, the most practical, pragmatic, and, and, um, and real uh, kind of blueprint that we've got of, of kind of creating uh, an African continent that, uh, that, that, that is, is shaped by Africans. There's political momentum, there's African agency, it's it is aspirational, but 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 if we adopt an incremental approach, I think um, I think it gives us something to work towards. So you know, I I don't think we should overcomplicate this with kind of grand visions and designs. It 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 really requires kind of a back to basics approach where where we're solving for 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 the basics uh, and then kind of um, moving towards greater regional integration and then continental integration, which then allows us to kind of um, to, to play a, a far more compelling role in, in, in global power dynamics. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And it has to be pragmatic and, and start with the basics, like you say. But I think there's one other challenge that we haven't really spoken about that's perhaps a, a kind of elephant in the room. And that's the, the fact that the sort of plans that you're talking about and the sort of negotiating for global power requires a long-term view. A long-term view, which is really without outside of the scope of those sort of geriatric politicians that we were speaking about earlier is lifestyle, lifespan. And we've seen this in South Africa, we've seen this across the continent where that sort of first generation of sort of free politicians, you know, they're the new dispensations, sort of hang on to power until essentially they are either forced out of office or they age out of office. And they are focused, due to the incentives of the way these sort of political systems have been set up, to focus on short term, to focus on populist dispensations and giving, giving things to populations to keep them popular, to keep them within power, all in the short term. And all of this sort of short term power negotiation is at the detriment for Africa as a whole and African nations as individual nations for, for building long-term power and long-term negotiating chips to deal with the rest of the world. That's a very big sort of trade-off we're having to deal with, this difference between short-termism and short-term thinking and getting what we need right now because Africa is a continent that deals with a lot more real problems. So we have more problems today than perhaps other nations would have. So it's not an unfair observation. There's legitimate reasons for short-termism too. But in order to become a global power, in order for something like the African Free Trade Agreement to work on a global level, not just on a local level, it requires long-term thinking. And I'm just not convinced that there are any incentives or carrots or sticks aligned with getting African leadership to think about that long now. And that becomes a source of huge disadvantage when essentially, like I was speaking about earlier, your closest competitors are the countries that are sort of closest to you on the sort of macro geopolitical life cycles. And they would be your countries like India and like China, of course. And China does have a long-term vision. China has a long-term plan and it has a culture that is instilled in their populations from very, very young ages towards working towards the long-term greater good of the, the Chinese nation state, or actually basically empire at this point. 
So how can Africa compete with that when we are constantly dealing with short-term crises on the one hand, on the other hand, we've got a fragmented leadership that is all really based, as you were speaking about earlier, on the sort of politics of the stomach. Unfortunately, there's not too many examples to the country that we can point to, even if we do want to be charitable to the, to the current leadership that we have distributed in the world around us right now. What is, what is your comment on that? And what are perhaps some short, sort of short-term steps that we can do to sort of point us towards playing a longer game? Because if we're not playing a longer game, we're going to lose the long game, even if we are feel like we're winning in the short term with our new bridges and our, our new bailouts or whatever the whatever the case is that we are that we are shooting for. Yeah, I mean I think you're you're quite right. You know, there's there's this tension between kind of, you know, the domestic kind of sovereignty and nationalist impulses that you're seeing in many countries on the continent and then this kind of longer term aspirational vision. Um, and there's that disconnect because on the one hand, you're asking countries to kind of cede sovereignty and, and, and forget about their domestic four-year election cycles for the greater good. But you know, in a context where, where everything is about short-term populism, that, that's a very difficult sell. And I think we're seeing that in various instances across the continent when we look at the continental free trade agreement, you know, Kenya negotiating a bilateral trade deal with, with the US, for example. Um, friction between Nigeria and South Africa around xenophobia, uh, border disputes between Nigeria and Benin, uh, Tanzania and Zambia. Um, all of these kind of protectionist impulses and this my country first kind of sentiment, which, um, which, which, is, which is playing out, does threaten to compromise this broader vision. I think, you know, ultimately the penny needs to drop. And, and that is, again, going to depend on the quality of leadership that we have. Uh, because ultimately, um, you know, we are not in a sustainable situation. So this kind of short-termism, short-term thinking eventually catches up uh, when the poor have nothing to eat, they eat the rich. Uh, and unfortunately, we, we, we are in a situation where we're sleepwalking to crisis and we're going to squander the demographic dividend uh, unless something drastic happens. Again, you know, I bring it back to the Continental Free Trade Agreement because that does present us with some kind of vision and, and, and articulated roadmap for the future. And I think in addition to the protectionist and nationalist versus kind of pan-African tension that you've got, you've also got two further tensions, which is around the kind of bigger and smaller states on the continent. And, you know, you want to avoid a kind of EU style situation between a Germany and a Greece where, you know, the benefits are not equally shared, the, the more vulnerable nations are, 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 are given adequate protection to make sure that they buy into this kind of grand vision. Uh, and it's not just a collective of, of, of the big nations uh, reaping the benefits, because that actually threatens to make to make things a lot worse than, than they currently are and to exacerbate the divisions. And then the, the third kind of tension that needs to be resolved is between kind of the technocrats and the political elites and the average uh, man or woman on the street. Um, because, you know, often that's at odds. We, we've got this, this lovely agreement that's been signed uh, in Kigali and that, you know, the, that, that's being brokered by the technocrats in, in, in the, the African Union. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the kind of day-to-day -day impact on the man on the street, if you ask kind of someone to take a short-term hit for the greater good when people are living below the breadline, it's going to be quite a difficult sell. So there needs to be a kind of um, 
I, I think those for me are the are the, the three tensions that that are, are going to be are going to need to be resolved in terms of of, of of making the continental free trade agreement a reality. But I think as I've mentioned in, in the past as well, um, you know, how the state is able to interface with the relationship between the state and its citizens, non-state actors, the business community, international creditors, um, and international powers, navigating those relationships is going to uh, determine how successful we are or not. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. But we have spoken quite a lot about the, the requirement for political leadership in Africa to step up to the plate because without their buy-in, without their actual buying into this long-term vision and to sacrificing some things in the short term for a longer term, stronger continent and stronger nation state too, uh, we're really not going to be getting very far, very fast with something like the African Free Trade Agreement. However, there's probably also something we need to speak about around the role of capital in this whole situation, and not just local capital, but international capital too. So we spoke briefly about how Africa can sort of, you know, show its ankle to the global investors to get a bit of a, a capital attracted towards us. But there's also a role for, for national and for local capital to get involved here. Is there not? Particularly since we are dealing with really weak states that are reliant on corporate interests and on taxpayers buying into these things too. So at the one, one hand, you've got to sort of change the mindsets of the, the very few, very elderly guys at the top. At the other hand, you've also got to get buy-in from the people that are essentially funding these state projects at the moment. And in an African context, that sort of funded class is not a majority like it is in developed parts of the world where more people than not are net taxpayers in countries like South Africa, and the same issues do take place across many places across Africa, you've really got very few hands that are controlling the levers of capital and they hold outsized power for that same reason. I mean, we know this, you've got a very small tax playing class, you've got a very few corporations that employ most of the people, that pay most of the corporate tax. How do we get those that capital class of interests aligned to these agendas too, because we can talk about this as much as we like. There's also going to be a sacrifice that is required and a compromise and a trade-off required for, for that group of power too. So both the sort of economic powers in Africa and the political powers in Africa have to align and have to compromise. So what are your thoughts there of how to get buy-in from a, from a class of, of entities that is really incentivized purely by profit margin at the end of the day? I mean, this is how capital markets work. Or does Africa have to forget about capitalism altogether, which is something we kind of alluded to earlier, but over to you. So I think this is really interesting because I think domestic solutions to domestic problems, I think, is, is, is something that is really undercooked on the continent. And, you know, the, the case in point here is around domestic capital markets. Um, if you look at some of our biggest challenges on the continent, they're infrastructure based. Now, if you're borrowing in foreign currency and your, your, your economic model is, is based on boom bust scenarios, you're constantly faced with timing mismatches and you're constantly faced with currency mismatches, which doesn't lead to a sustainable state of affairs. Then you also look at kind of domestic banking sectors who are not lending into the real economy because they're simply taking deposits and putting them in, in treasury bills, which are kind of giving you very attractive rates north of 15%. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. So, you know, you've, you've got the situation where you don't have a domestic pool of capital. 
And if you kind of can develop that, you can you can deal with things of infrastructure, you can lend into the real economy, you can stimulate economic activity. So I think you know domestic domestic solutions are critically important, and that that requires really a lot of political will. Um, because if you look at our, our dependency on external funding, we've got the IMF, we've got China, we've got bilateral and concessional loans, and we've got we've got um, international financial markets. Each of these have a carrot and a stick. But I think reducing this dependency will then allow us to become more autonomous, more self-sufficient, and less dependent on, on the vagaries of what happens in the global, global economy. Um, so I think developing those domestic solutions are, are, are critical. Uh, I think also, you know, and this is something that we've written about together, I think using our domestic human capital and physical resources effectively uh, is important. And, you know, the technicolor economy, which looks at, uh, uh, you know, the green economy, the blue economy, the purple economy, which is the cultural economy, the flat white digital economy, and the gray economy, which is the informal economy. These are all underdeveloped sectors, which have huge potential, which fall very nicely into what the continental free trade agreement is trying to achieve. Uh, and I think these are, these are underdeveloped and under, underexplored. So, you know, I guess the, the core message is that this needs to be kind of, we need to look inward uh, for, for these, these local solutions because we're not gonna get any help from the, the external environment. Well, exactly. If we're not prepared to invest in ourselves, why should anyone else be? I mean, if, if we're not prepared to take on that sort of risk, we have to expect to be exploited by various different worldviews that all offer different trade-offs but won't be acting in our own best interests. So it really is a case of we all have to kind of step up to the plate. So to close off with, Ronak, um, you know, what, what advice could you give to people that are listening to this, that happen to listen to this conversation? Ordinary citizens, ordinary consumers, ordinary business people who are watching this, is there anything in particular that they can do to invest in a a win-win future for Africa? Do you have any advice for individuals or is this a case of we really are at the mercy of our politicians and we better be voting for, for better hands to guide us if we want to get better results going forward? What are your closing comments then? Yeah, so I think, I think you know, this, this is a complicated continent. We're at a very complicate, complicated point in time and the pandemic has really exposed a lot of a lot of our weaknesses, but I think, you know, this creates opportunity as well. I think the extent of the challenges is such that we can't, you know, the state is important, but it's not the be all and end all uh, of everything. The role of the private sector is, is critically important and civil society as well. Um, I think the ability to kind of create transformative change to do well and to do good uh, on the continent is, is unrivaled. Uh, but I think we really do need to be smart about the way we approach it. And that starts, I think, with understanding the, the nuances and the complexities of the continent, understanding what's going on, on both internally and externally, um, and having a, a really kind of sophisticated nuanced view around country specific dynamics as well. Um, you know, I think it's quite easy to, to kind of be very risk averse towards the, to the continent because it's complicated, it's messy, um, and there's kind of lots of commotion all the time. But I think with, um, with, with the kind of right homework, the right due diligence, with the right partnerships, um, there's significant opportunity. And I think quite, quite simply put, the continent is going to be too big to ignore um, 
from an investment perspective, uh, you know, one in four African, one in four people in the world by 2050 are going to be African. So, you know, whether we like it or not, it's going to play a fundamental role in 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 the global political economy going forward. So, um, yeah, I think I, the concluding message is ignore Africa at your peril. Excellent advice. So where can people find you if they want to unpack some of these ideas in a bit more detail, read more of your work? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, usually uh, giving too many opinions. So you can you can find me, find me over there. Don't ask him about the Black Forest cake, right? Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Small Prince. Thanks for having me.